morning will be from Psalms chapter 15. Psalms 15. We'll be reading the whole chapter. O Lord, who shall, who shall sojourn in your tent, who shall dwell on your, on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and, do, and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and, and, does, no, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not sin, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. morning and grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that we have uh, several visitors here with us. Uh, we're very thankful for your presence. Uh, we're glad that you're here, uh, that we can worship our God together. I do want to emphasize uh, before we begin just one more time, we do have that community blood drive that's coming up on March 23rd. And if you can donate blood or just uh, get the word out for us, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, we're trying to do this just as a way to help our community. Uh, there's still uh, a need of a, there's a huge blood shortage right now in our nation, uh, specifically when it comes to uh, a blood that has antibodies and uh, to use for those who are suffering from uh, COVID, and they're using that in various treatments. And so uh, in this blood drive, they'll be testing for antibodies. And, uh, and so you'll know if you have the antibodies, if you're interested in that, a couple of weeks afterwards. So if you can help us, because we do need 50, as we mentioned, uh, to get uh, them to be able to host it here. And we want to do that as a means of helping our neighbors and our community. Uh, you know, spring break is uh, coming up just around the corner. I was talking to Lee and Gavin ahead of time. I said, I feel like I have a little bit of PTSD uh, from spring break last year um, because our kids never went back. It was the longest spring break in the history of the United States. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever the kids are on spring break and uh, whenever summer break comes up, there's a lot of uh, boredom that suddenly infects our household, uh, whereas previously the kids maybe uh, whine about going to school in the morning, and, and I'm sure that your children do at some point. When they're home, uh, they're a little bit bored at times, and so when you tell them to, hey, go outside, and they say, well, what can we do outside? We say what? Use your imagination, right? Use your imagination. That phrase, I think, has been used by every parent since the beginning of time. Go out and, and use your imagination. Imagination is an interesting thing. It's uh, an interesting occurrence. It appears to be uniquely human, at least to the level of which we can do it. It allows us to conceive of new and different and exciting possibilities. And in fact, children sometimes will even have imaginary friends that almost seem real in how they interact with them. They're almost creating this new world by their imagination. And as we grow older, our imagination allows us to use creativity and ingenuity in architect and music and media and politics and a host of other things to create a new and better future. Before it can occur, before it can happen, before it comes in the real world, we have to be able to envision it. We have to be able to imagine it. And God, as, as creating us as image bearers, gave us that ability to imagine a better future and brighter future and to work towards that. And our imagination can do that if we use our imagination in a life-giving way. 
if we use our imagination in a constructive way. And I say if we use our imagination in that way because the dark side, the flip side of imagination is what we might refer to as fantasy. And fantasies, generally speaking, can be twisted and distorted versions of imagination leading us to conceive of possibilities which are unholy, which are ungodly, and which are even destructive. When we look at individuals who have done destructive things in their life, often it started within here. They fantasized about something. They are distorted in that they take something that is good and they pursue the deviant and the despicable within the inner confines of the mind and the heart. But just as we talked about, imagination eventually comes out into the real world. It eventually acts. Imagination eventually acts. So too do fantasies eventually come out and they act. And it creates destruction and it creates pain and it creates at times unthinkable evil. And this is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15 verses 19 and 20. When he said, out of the heart, out of the mind, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, fantasies, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these things, Jesus says, they defile a person. They mess up your life. And they defile you before God. Now, Jesus already talked about the connection between fantasy and reality and how they are partners. They can't be separated when he talked about anger. Remember? When he talked about hatred, whoever is angry with his brother without a cause, and he connects it to murder, right? Where murder has gone, hate has paved the way. And he says that the the fantasy of murder, fantasizing about killing someone, and actually killing someone are, are two sides of the same coin. Because those types of thought and that type of hatred gives us the foundation and paves the way for us to do something as inhumane as killing another human. And now as we open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 and we continue our study in Matthew, in verses 27 through 30, Jesus talked about another destructive fantasy. And it's a destructive fantasy that is so embedded within the American mind and even the modern world to rip it out of our lives would be like trying to rip out a limb or trying to pluck out an eye. And that destructive fantasy that Jesus is going to talk about here is lust. In fact, Jesus ironically is going to use the metaphor of losing an eye or losing a limb to show the high cost and the difficulty of ridding your life of sexual lust. It's very difficult says. But there is more here than just condemning lust in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. Jesus is showing that within the kingdom life, remember that's what the Sermon on the Mount is. In, in Matthew 1 through 4, if you remember from our previous sermons, Jesus is shown to be the new king, the new chosen king by God. He's born under the nose of Herod. He's the real reigning king. But what does it look like when King Jesus reigns? How does your life reorient when Jesus is reigning? And what he's saying here isn't just a condemnation of lust, and it is that, as we will talk about, 
but he's showing us that within the kingdom, it's a life of sanctified imagination. It's a life in which not only are our actions ruled by Jesus Christ, but our thoughts are as well. That our thoughts are under the throne of King Jesus. That Jesus wants to free us from the slavery of lust and objectification so that we can be who we were meant to be as God's creative image bearers within this world. That's what he longs to do. And so that is where joy and fulfillment comes from, from understanding this issue of lust and freeing ourselves by the power of Christ from it. So let's jump into Matthew 5. I want to read verses 27 through 30, and then we'll discuss it a little bit. Matthew 5, verses 27 through 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body is thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. This short little section of scripture begins by discussing what we might refer to as objectification and infidelity. And Jesus has a lot to say here about what does it mean to objectify someone, to, to simply look at them as an object for your own lust, as an object for your own desires, without recognizing them as a subject, without recognizing them as a person, and seeing their inherent value and, and, uh, and their image within the image of God. So there's a lot he has to say here about objectification and infidelity. Now listen, the Jewish, the, the Jewish law took adultery very seriously. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That's one of the big ten, right? You shall not commit adultery. This was at the heart of the law of Israel. If you were caught in adultery, if it was found out that you were in adultery and you were uh, uh, committing infidelity, it was punishable by death. In Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10, we see that. And that seems a little bit harsh to us, doesn't it? If you're caught in the act of adultery if, or if you commit adultery, it's, it's death. That seems a little bit harsh to us. But most cultures, as you look back over time, and even our own country, had legal consequences for being unfaithful to your spouse. And again, that seems very odd to us, at least to the, the, the current modern mind, because we generally view uh, the sexual experience as something that is individual, that really the state should have nothing to do with. And that if it has, if this is my choice, this is my body, and so really you should have nothing to say about that. But every culture and, and every society in the past, most that is, recognized that, that the laws that they had were not simply meant to protect the individual, but they were meant to protect society as a whole. And so these cultures recognize, and even our own recognize, that the destruction and the heartbreak and the pain and the financial loss, the violence and even the death that is often caused by adultery and infidelity must be guarded against within a society. And they realize that if there, there, if there weren't laws with some type of penalty, that, in, that, that there would be, a, that there would be a rampant infidelity. And so laws have tried to do that. They've tried to, to guard against that. And even God's law tries to do that. And yet... 
as strict as their society was, Jesus says it wasn't enough. And that's really strange. And, and, and he's not saying it wasn't enough because the penalty wasn't high enough. In fact, he's going to give a much harsher penalty for adultery if it is not repented of. But rather he says that it wasn't enough and that they had really missed the heart of the law. They had really missed what God was saying when he says, you shall not commit adultery. How is this law viewed in Jesus' day? And what's he talking about here? Well, it's viewed in this way. The Jews of their day, especially the Pharisees, essentially believed that, listen, they could lust and they could objectify someone as much as they wanted because they technically weren't physically committing the act of adultery. And so, you know, this was the line right here, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I could walk as close to that line as I possibly wanted, still wasn't crossing the line. I haven't physically done anything. I can look at the menu, even though I'm not going to order, right? And that's how they viewed it. I, I haven't broken this big law, and so I can get as close as I can to it without breaking it and still be okay. They could fantasize as long as they didn't commit the actual infidelity. But Jesus says that this law isn't just about the hand that grabs another woman or the hand that grabs another man's wife. It's not just about the hand. It's also about the eye that is looking after and fantasizing long before the hand ever reaches out. Objectification, making someone an object of your lust within the confines of your mind, and infidelity go hand in hand. If you see someone simply as an object of your desire to be used by lust, then you will have no issue of eventually and inevitably taking the next step of committing the act. And that's what Jesus understood. Do you remember what we talked about at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount? Most of Jesus' teachings are so radical. You know, we don't, you know, we don't really teach on the Sermon on the Mount, not thoroughly anymore, because it's so challenging and it's so radical. We'll pick little things here and there, let your light shine, be a peacekeeper and stuff like that. But then you get to teachings like this, and it is so radical, it's difficult, because what Jesus is saying is, is as king, if no one ever committed adultery, if no one ever was unfaithful in their marriage, but there were still people that were lusting and objectifying people in their hearts and in their minds, he wouldn't be satisfied. He says because there's one leads to the other. These two things are connected. You can't disconnect these things. They're intimately intertwined. It's like someone, it's like someone uh, uh, taking a bite of food or smelling it, taking a bite of food, chewing it up, putting it on their tongue, but not swallowing and saying, well, I'm not eating. I'm not eating. Jesus says <laughs> these two processes are connected, objectification, lust, and infidelity. Now, the word that he uses for lust here is in the present tense in the Greek. And all that means is this, that it's ongoing. What he's saying is it's a studied looking with sexual intent that is done within the heart, within the inner man. You don't know. And that's the dangerous part. Nobody else knows. Nobody else can know. The original meaning of the word had to do with looking intensely over, with breathing hard over. Now, Jesus isn't saying that recognizing uh, and appreciating someone's beauty or thinking that someone is attractive 
is wrong. That's not what he's saying here. In fact, I think that maybe sometimes when business has been taught, you know, we, we kind of almost imply that, that, that thinking that someone's attractive or that thinking that someone's a, be- a beautiful person um, is, is wrong. That's not what he's saying. What he's talking about is the twisted and distorted mindset which then takes attraction and it turns it into a depraved sexual mental state in which you are thinking over and panting over and coveting, which is tied into adultery, coveting and longing for something that you don't deserve, longing for another person which you have no sexual rights to. That's what he's talking about, and that is a serious issue within the heart of man. It's a serious issue within our culture. Sexual intimacy is a blessing. It is a gift from God. And, and, I, and I want us to understand that. You know, in the past, you know, it seems as if there has uh, maybe been this teaching and this idea that it's, it's bad, but that's not the case. Scripture says it's a blessing and it is a gift from God. Yet, it is meant to exist only within the confines of a committed marriage. In fact, the context of sexual intimacy is commitment and companionship within Scripture which exist within marriage. I want you to think back to the garden, for example. And and maybe you haven't thought about this. Whenever God creates woman, the immediate need is not sexual. That doesn't come till the end of the chapter. The two shall become one flesh. That doesn't come till the end. What is the need? Why does he create woman? companionship. He needs someone like him. He's lonely. It's not good that man should be what? Alone. So I'm going to create someone that's going to be a companion to him because a dog doesn't work, a cat doesn't work, a fish doesn't work, but this is going to work. And so you have companionship. And then even before he talks about the, the sexual intimacy, he also says what? This is now bone of my bone. This is now Flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave who? His father, his mother, commitment, and then what? The two shall become one flesh. Companionship and commitment are the context for the blessedness of sexual intimacy. And that is what God intended from the beginning of creation. But when you take those two things away, when you take companionship and when you take commitment away, what do you have? Lust. You have objectification. You have objectification of someone. Because you don't view them as a companion and you are not committed to them as an individual. And the result is brokenness. And lust is the ultimate distortion of this because not only is it devoid of commitment, not only is it devoid of companionship, it is also done in the privacy of the heart and the mind in which we have total control and the person has absolutely no consent to it at all. And and if I'm talking about these things as making you uncomfortable, it should make you uncomfortable. It is deeply uncomfortable to talk about these things, but the human heart is a depraved and twisted thing. Jesus says this, not only is the act of adultery or fornication, which by the way, 
the Jews would have viewed adultery as any type of sexual conduct outside of the confines of marriage, whether it was heterosexual, whether it was homosexual, anything like that would have been adultery, fornication, sexual immorality. But Jesus says it's not simply the act, but a life, a heart that is consumed by lust that will eventually and inevitably reside in hell if it is not taken care of. And this is a startling message to the world that we live in because our culture is not only consumed with, or, or, or our culture is not only not concerned with things like modesty and chastity and purity, it's not concerned with those things, but it also exalts and it applauds lust. It exalts and applauds it. We see this uh, in a particularly heinous way within the pornography industry. The porn industry currently is a billion-dollar enterprise that is consuming the hearts and the minds of both men and women, both believer and non-believer. If you think that it's only an issue within the world, then you are absolutely naive. I'm sorry, but you are. It is an issue within the church just as much as it is within the world, sadly. It's an assumed reality. Pornography is assumed reality in the world. It's laughed at. It's used as comedy in TV shows. And the sad reality is that what Jesus taught, that objectification and infidelity, those two things going out, that you're eventually going to act out on it. If you're fantasizing about it, if you're objectifying someone, you're eventually going to act out on it. That reality has been witnessed in a heinous way within our culture. Study after study after study after study has shown all of the pain and the heartbreak and the destruction that the porn industry is doing to marriages, to our society. It is the main production line for human trafficking. Until we address the pornography issue in our culture, the issue of human trafficking will never be adequately dealt with. It will never be done. And so until we take that seriously, the other is going to keep going. And so this fantasizing has led to this great harm within our culture and within our world. And so I want you to take this all in. I want you to take all of this in that I'm talking about here. Because whenever we witness the consequences of this and we step back and we see all of the pain and all of the heartbreak and all of the destruction that lust has caused and fantasizing has caused and objectification has caused in our world, does it really surprise you that Jesus says, number one, you have got to take this seriously and you have got to get it out of your life as, as much as you possibly can, no matter what it takes. And then number two, the consequences of this, if it is not taken care of, are serious. You wind up in hell. Now, initially when reading this text, I think we'd probably think, well, isn't Jesus being a little bit harsh here? I mean, come on, everybody's got a problem with this. I mean, he understands where this leads to, and he understands the consequences. And so now he goes on to talk about the high cost of holiness. The high cost of holiness. Sin is slavery. Jesus said such in John 8 and verse 34. Whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And the reality of such is witness, maybe to its fullest extent, within the slavery of sexual lust. Breaking free of this taskmaster is not easy, and it is not painless. In fact, Jesus says that it's like losing an eye or a limb. And both of these are used within the lust and within lust and adultery. 
Jesus says you have to pluck out your eye, you have to cut off your hand. He's not encouraging self-mutilation. He's using a metaphor to say this is what it's like. You have to cut it off at its source. And it's going to be painful and it's going to hurt and it's going to be difficult because in many ways it feels as if you're killing a part of you because it has become so much a part of your nature. And you are killing a part of you. You're killing the old man that was you. And he says, it's like this. And if you're not going to take it seriously, if you're not going to take lust seriously, and if you're struggling with it this morning, I have more to say about that in just a minute, but if you're struggling with it this morning, if you're not willing to take it seriously and give an all-out battle against it, you're not going to get rid of it in your life. It hangs on that closely. It hangs on that tightly. And so you, you have people come into the office my office and other preachers' offices at times who say, I'm struggling with a pornography addiction. What can I do? And you say, well, you need to get rid. Uh, you don't need to have your computer in your room alone. You need to get this software on your phone that's going to help guard you when you're weak and when you're tempted. You need to have an accountability partner. I'll be your accountability partner. You need to do this. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I want to get rid, but that's a, that's a little bit asking too much. Well, I could cut your hand off. I mean, pluck your eye out if you want. That's easier. Jesus is saying, unless you take this seriously, it will always be a part of your life. It will always be a part of your life. And yet, it must be remembered that the high cost of holiness can't compare to the eternal consequence of hell. Which is why I think Jesus specifically mentions hell in this context. You notice he doesn't really mention hell a whole lot in the Sermon on the Mount. He mentions it here. Why here? Why, out of everything that he's talking about, the different sins he's talking about, why does he mention hell here? Because I think Jesus knows that sometimes when you're in the throes of dealing with sexual lust, the only thing that scares you enough, that wakes you up enough to get this out of your life is hell. And thanks be to God that Jesus mentions it here. Because if he didn't mention it here, we would not take this sin seriously. We just would not. We wouldn't. Because it comes so naturally to many. I want to say just a little bit more about this. Because I know that there's probably some that are struggling with this very battle this morning. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're struggling with that. And you have fought with it. And you feel like you can't fight anymore. And you feel like you will never overcome. I just want to tell you this morning, I want to encourage you to keep fighting. Even when you backtrack, even when you fall back in, turn around, confess, turn back to God, and keep fighting. The, the struggle, in some ways, will never be gone, but it will get easier. There's a, an abundance of resources to help you, which I would be more than willing to give you, and to offer you, and to help you in any way that I can. I love what the author Sinclair Ferguson said about this when I was studying for the sermon. He says, do not be deceived into a hopeless abandonment of sin. Do not be deceived into a hopeless abandonment of sin. What he means by that is, is that some people get so frustrated in the struggle that they just say, I, I can never win. I'm never going to get over this. And so they just abandon themselves to sexual sin and to lust. And they don't even try and fight it anymore. And he says, don't be deceived in that way. And I also want to say this to you, that you are not on your own. In fact, you cannot break this bondage on your own. You need Jesus for that. 
You need Christ for that. You need the strength of Christ. Only His grace, only His love, only His forgiveness can root out this sin in your life. And only when you learn to surrender Him fully and completely, only when you allow the throne of Christ to rule over the thoughts of your heart and your mind can you truly overcome this sin. That's the only way it's going to happen. Only by His power can you conquer this demon and free yourself from this bondage. As we close, I wanted to give you a thought that I ran across with C.S. Lewis. and C.S. Lewis has a, a great little book. It's called The Great Divorce. And it's, 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 it's actually a fiction. And, and in this book, lust is depicted as a man who's walking around with this lizard on his shoulder that's constantly talking in his ear. You've got to do this. You need to do this. You've got to do this. And, he's, and he's, he's constantly trying to fight it, but he can't get this, this lizard off of his shoulder. And later, the lizard, once the man learns to, how, when he learns the secret to overcoming, overcoming it, and he submits to Christ, the lizard turns into a horse. And the man gets on the horse and he rides away. You might be thinking, what in the world does that mean? Well, what Lewis was trying to show was that he understood that, a, that, that, that at the heart of every demonic fantasy is a delight. He understood that behind every warped desire is a genuine one. That sometimes the, the lust that we're struggling with isn't so much sexual as it is a desire for companionship and commitment. And sometimes when we understand the heart of our desire, only then can we conquer it. And so he said this in his book. He said, Lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with the richness and energy of desire will, will arise when lust has been killed. Lust is a bondage to anyone who's ensnared in it to living the fullness of their life in the glory of God's light and revelation find our true desires within Christ and in Christ alone. And so, if we will offer ourselves to Christ and fight for the high price of holiness, our imagination will be set free and sanctified for genuine and holy desires by the power of God. And so that is the message of Christ to us, His church, this morning. And if you are struggling with that, or maybe you haven't submitted to Christ, you haven't submitted to his kingship, you haven't submitted your life to him, you don't believe in him, or maybe you believe in him, but you haven't really repented, you haven't confessed him as king, maybe you haven't been immersed for the forgiveness of your sins, we want to help you in any way that we can. If you don't want to come forward this morning and talk to me or one of the elders afterwards, we want to help you. Whatever your need is, why don't you come as together we stand and as we sing.